0: Just got off the plane here in manchester england and i checked into the hotel and i'm jet lagged beyond belief but i'm looking forward to a month of touring over here got a lot of good shows coming up i think this week i'm in flyfield and cardiff and then liverpool and i can't remember anything past then but i had a stopover flight in washington dc and the second i walked off the plane i just overcome with this uncontrollable urge to squander money pick fights and make promises i can't keep the damnedest thing Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks For Giving A Damn. I'm sitting here in my hotel in Manchester, England, and I am jet-lagged beyond belief. This is a personal journal, this is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter, there's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Cheetah Chrome. Cheetah is a guitar player, a singer, a songwriter. He's an A&R man. You might know him from his bands, Rocket from the Tombs and the Dead Boys. But you can find out everything you need to know about Cheetah at CheetahChrome.com. We had a lot of great response last week for part one. and I'm looking forward to getting to share part two with you. But before I do... I want to mention that cheetah has a book called a dead boy's tale and it's really good and i know that if you listen to this show you really dig the rock and roll stories and this is full of them cheetah has been right there in the center of a lot of cool things for a long time so you know be sure and check that out i think you'll enjoy it but here's part two of
1: cheetah chrome yeah we were in um Heartbreakers played in Cleveland. We, we were downtown um, at the Viking Saloon on the night they get, they got into town. They came down there and they, uh, you know, were partying. You know, me and Sunders had an incident a few a few early, years earlier where he threw a drink at me and we got in a fight when he's with the dolls. And he didn't remember me. And I was like, you know, well, last time I saw you, he threw a drink in my face. <laughs> all yeah, so, you know, and I was about ready to kick his ass right then, but then uh, things calmed down, and um, he invited me over to the hotel the next day to, you know, jam, so I went over there and did that, and we hit it off, and was Stiv already knew him, Stiv, you know, but I hadn't met him yet. Did he know who
0: you were, when, or you were a random person? No, he had no clue, he, he
1: just thought, he just knew I was this red-headed asshole that Stiv hung out with you know, but we ended up being becoming very, really close. We lived together for a little bit at one point, and, you know, we hung out together all the time. When Stiv died, the first two people that came over uh, were Johnny and Jerry to, you know, come over and hang out and make sure I was okay. <laughs> What's What was Johnny like as a roommate? We lived on Ludlow Street with uh, another friend of mine, ours, uh, Michael, Michael Ackerman, and, uh, Johnny would go out to the clubs, and he'd come home, and he would, you know, this was mattress on the floor, you know, little, you know, apartment set up, and Johnny was in the middle room, and he would be laying there going, "I'm hungry, I'm hungry," like me and Mike both like opposite ends of the building go, "You're the refrigerator is two feet away from you," (laughs) you know. <laughs> and, but no, he didn't want. The, he wanted us to get up and feed him. You know, and he was. You know,
0: <laughs> was there a lot of recreational activities taking place?
1: Oh yeah. Well, that place, um, you know, they sold drugs on the street outside the apartment, and so we knew the guys. You know, the deal, and we literally could, you know, take our buzzer, and you know. The one where you speak to see who's at the door. We could just push the button and go, "Hey, you out there," you know. I forget their names, you know. But they say, like, "Yeah, yeah, we're here." Okay, yeah. Can you come up for a minute? <laughs> you know, and they'd come upstairs. We would do. We never had to leave the house. <laughs> it wasn't that much to live there. I mean, it was, uh, it was back then, probably six, seven hundred bucks a month, which I guess was, you know, a lot in you know those days. But it was Ludlow Street. It wasn't a good neighborhood. Um... You know, we played, you know, we played gigs and, you know, three of us pitching in. So it was only really, you know, two, three hundred bucks a month each.
0: Do you remember how you heard about Johnny passing?
1: Yeah, um, I was playing, I was playing the Continental and I, um, I mean, walking in and one of the people go, man, you know, I, I just heard a really bad rumor, um, that Johnny Thunders died. We're double checking it though. And I'm like, oh, holy shit, you know, let me know. So a couple of minutes later, he comes over and I just talked to him. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, New Orleans, and that's when you know I got up on stage and said, "Hey, you know, this was for Johnny." You know, John and I became friends. Uh, when he came by to, um, you know, him and Chuck Young from Rolling Stone just came down to meet us one time. Um, Chuck brought him down, and they came backstage, and uh, we ended up, you know, exchanging numbers and talking, and. Um, you know, a couple of weeks later, I get a call from John. He goes, "Hey man, you want to go out? You know, go out for dinner." So we took our wives out to Odeon, and um, it was and Michael O'Donoghue and his girlfriend came along. You know, and uh, we got along good. I mean, John was uh, very strange because he wasn't always on. You know, he we wear that leather jacket from the movie nineteen forty two. You know, yeah. <laughs> but um. One thing we noticed about him was that, you know, he was always watching people and kinda you could tell he was getting, you know, always kinda taking things to, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um you know, there was you hear all these crazy stories about him. And um yeah, we had some nice we party pretty good and all that, but I don't I never was around when he did any of this crazy stuff, you know, with a six foot line and start at mm-hmm. one end and go to the other, you know, with, you know, meet in the middle. Um, it was never like that. We always were pretty civilized, you know. We, you know, we had a good time. I, I, I loved know, I, I miss it. We met Anita. She came to a Dead Boys gig. A mutual friend brought her down and, and uh, introduced us. And, um, she, you know. Got in touch with me because she wanted to, uh, you know, pick something up, and I knew where to pick, find something, and, um, we kind of just developed a relationship from there. Well, uh, we got along really good, um, and so when, you know, at that point they were living in a hotel on the uh, on the Upper East Side, of her and Marlon, and then um, he's got them a house out on Long Island. And that was one of the first of a series of houses they had. Like there were like two or three of them. And so, you know, she would invite us over for weekends and periodically, you never knew when, but you know, Keith would pop in for a weekend to visit Maryland and all that. Um, and, you know, this was when he first met Patty Hansen. Uh, the first couple of times he hadn't met her yet, you know, and, he'd come and he came over this just kind of visiting his family, you know. And because they were estranged, you know. And then um, after he, you know, met Patty, he met her the night I broke my wrist at the um, the roller rink, roller skating. And um, then he would come out to the you know, they, at, he would come out to the house on the island, you know, and show up unannounced. Or you know he would you know come out for special occasions like Marilyn's birthday or Anita's birthday, something like that um you know we'd hang then and you know can't hang along with keith without him pulling out a guitar (laughs) you know and so you know we had to just sit around and play you know some some stuff and um you know we got along quite well and uh then after the gated two tour um you know he didn't he he was kind of um cutting the cord with anita because of that whole trial from her shooting you know that kid shooting the himself in the head in their house and all that. That was coming up and getting a lot of press and Keith wanted to distance himself from that. And so he kinda of stopped coming around a bit. But periodically, you know, I remember one time he, you know, he usually called me out of my mom's house to see if I was gonna be in town to, you know, get together and get something and, you know, hang out. <laughs> and uh I mean I haven't seen him in years. But, you know, I mean well, I like to think he remembers who I am, but a very good chance he doesn't <laughs> you know you might not who actually you know you know something when um I take that back because when I wrote my book, um Marlon, you know, who I've stayed in touch with over the years, um said, you know, oh, I want to get a because his book came out at the same time pretty much, and um and he said, Oh, you know, Dad wants a copy of, of your book and he know, you know gonna get you one of his, you know, and I said, okay, cool, so we Sent that to him. So yeah, he did remember me. You know, the thing that surprised me the most about the Rolling Stones, um, when I first met them, um, was at Electric Lady Studios, I was working on the Ronnie Spector album. And it was me and Tommy Price, Billy Rath, um, a couple other guys from Genya's band. Genya was producing. They were doing rhythm tracks, so they had me and, you know, Ronnie would be sitting outside, you know, playing pinball or talking, you know. It was funny because the first... At one point, and the, uh, when we got to the studio, Anita was, and Marlon were outside. And the people at the studio wouldn't let them in because, you know, the Stones hadn't gotten there yet. And we didn't even know they were going to be there. And she goes, oh, yeah, they're recording here tonight. They're doing overdev. okay, great, cool. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, I'm going to meet the Rolling Stones. So I brought them in. It's my guests, And then they, you know, when the Stones got there, it was really funny because, you know, um, Marlon comes around and he goes, mom, mom, dad's here. <laughs> 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 and... So she brought us up to, um, to meet them, and they were up in the upstairs studio. Uh, first thing that happened is I get up to the top of the stairs, and um, I had to tie my shoe, so I'm tying my shoe, and Anita has this like heavy German Italian accent, you know, and she said, you know, thought, you know, I want to, this is so and so, and I um, looked definitely just a guy with a beard and carrying some books under his arm, and I thought oh, yeah, I'd be the engineer or something like that, you know, he didn't, you know, and Shake his hand, and um, go into the studio. And as I'm walking through the door, you know, there's Keek standing at the board, <laughs> you know, having a cigarette, and you know, Bob did his Apollo Jack, and we get introduced. And um, one of the first, one of the first things he said was, um, "He goes, I heard you guys haven't had some problems over at my father's place the other night,' and I was like, you know." How the hell did he do that? Because he had they had there'd been a discrepancy over the door money. And uh, there had been, you know, an incident, you know, this this argument, you know, and all that. But yeah, and he goes, uh I said, holy shit, this, you know, the rolling stones, know, like what happened, you know. <laughs> and um You know, then the first thing you know, of course, he passes me a joint. Next thing you know, he's passing me a tray with his big pile of, you know, on it. And uh, we're listening to they were working on "She's So Cold" at the time, and uh, there were no vocals or anything on it, and it was just the basic tracks. It was what amazed me at the time was how much it sounded like Baker's Banquet, the track without the vocals and just you know the guitars on it. And then um, later on, of course, it sounded completely nothing like that. But it was like you know no, just bare bones. The Stones. It, it sounded like you know something off of that. And then Anita goes, "Oh, she goes, how, how did you like Mick?" And I was like. I met him yet. She goes, yeah, that you met him when we were coming upstairs. I'm like, what? And then, then I look over and I realize that this guy with the beard <laughs> in the books was Mick Jagger. We're talking about like yours. You know, he had you know, a good beard. And, um, oh, well, cool, you know, cool. You know, I didn't get to talk to him. Well, later on. Oh, we went out and kind of was in the left the control room and I was sitting out like in the lounge party having a beer and talking to Billy rath and uh Larry Cely was another good friend of mine um and uh, Jagger comes out you know and um sat down with us and we, you know was talking a little bit with Larry and then other people kind of drifted off and um and Jagger listen at he goes have you seen any good shows over there at the beacon?" And I was like, okay, this is really weird because I lived around the corner from the Beacon, Stu- Beacon Theater. And how would <laughs> Mick Jagger, you know, know that? And I said, um, I said no, you know, I said you know I live around the corner from it, but I uh, I never, you know, I you know I haven't been to a show over there in a while. And he goes, um, he goes yeah, I don't, yeah, I see you all the time up there. And I'm like, what, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it turns out Mick Jagger lives like four blocks from me and would see me like when he was coming home he would see me walking around the neighborhood i never saw him you know but yeah and um we ended up talking talking about the beacon theater in the neighborhood and um and then old movies that were They used to always have like an old movie on at two o'clock in the morning you know they were usually pretty good at classic stuff like that and uh, we got talking about the movies around two o'clock in the morning and and got along just great and um one of the things that really impressed me about the Stones was like how much they, kind of went out of their way to make other people feel comfortable. You know, like there wasn't, you know, any kind of a. I mean, I know you. I've seen them attitude people. You know what I mean? But um, you know, if, if you knew somebody or you, you know you were introduced by the right people and all that, they really went out of their way to make you, you know, feel normal and not nervous and put you at ease. You know. And every time we met after that, he was like really, you know, just really nice guy. And, you know, I got a lot of respect for Jagger because he's, um, you know, he's always gets the, you know, he keeps the cool stone and all that, but, uh, Jagger, a lot of it's Jagger. A lot of the stuff you think Keith did Jagger. Well, you know, I met Ian first, um... In Cleveland when um, the Hunter Ronson Band played their first tour and the, the, the Piccadilly Inn which was a club um, in in Cleveland um, always used to have after parties for the radio station you know they'd have like the Roxy music or Me Rebel you know and you know we knew people that would get us invited to this you know so we went to that and um, it was really neat because we got there before the party really started and um, Ian and Mick were in the band were all, you know, there early and just kind of sitting around and talking and got, you know, talked to him for a good 10, 15 minutes before the people started coming in, you know, and he had to be, you know, do the meet and greet shit. Um, Same with Mick. I mean, Mick Mick Ronson was a great guy, great guy. We ended up being neighbors on Gramercy Park where he, um, you know, he lived in one building, I lived in another, we'd always run bump into each other at the stores, you know, in the deli and stuff like that. Um, so Ian, you know, and there, I think there was another time they came through and we went to the party and he, you know, recognized me, hey man, how you doing, you know? And, um, then at CBGB's when the Dead Boys were playing, he came down one time and he brought his wife and daughter with him. And his daughter Tracy was a little hottie, uh, underage, a little hottie, you know, <laughs> like 15 or 16. But, um... So we were sitting there. We went over to say hi to Ian and all that, and, me, and you know, we were kind of, <laughs> you know. And um, Ian, I didn't realize it, but the next thing I know, I'm reading in Cream Magazine and it's saying like Ian Hunter had told his daughter Tracy to stay away from Cheetah <laughs> oh. Chrome. And um, and Ian, I guess you know, kind of totally got it. We're like, you know, he, you know, I thought he was coming over to pay his respects to me. And he was hitting my, he was to hit my daughter. <laughs> And um, this went on forever. And it was funny because we, I didn't see it for a long time. And then you know, CBG was closed and they opened that John Varvado store. They had a gig where um, they had a whole bunch of people play. But it was like Lenny K and me and Manitoba, you know, and Manitoba did Sonic producer with me. Um, you know, it was Ronnie Spector, Joan Jett. Ian Hunter, and they had me on in between Joan Jett and Ian Hunter. So I come up, I go, I go "Hey man, how you doing?" He goes, "Oh, I guess, you know, Cheetah. I don't know if you remember me. I Cheetah." He goes, "Oh, Cheetah, you fancied my daughter, <laughs> you know?" <laughs> and, and it was funny because then I got on, you know, and people, other people would come over over the years and said, "You know, boys, I asked somebody, you know, hey, do you know Cheetah Girl?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, he's always told, oh, he told the story." And one day I get a, a, a friend request from Tracy Hunter on Facebook. <laughs> and, I, you know, I confirm her and I send her a message, man, don't tell your dad, <laughs> you know. And she goes, oh, he has dined out on that story for years, you know. And, um, but then, you know, we got a chance to talk at that gig. And I just told him, you know, I really didn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, I meant no disrespect, you know, and all that. It was, you know, my little harmless flirting and, um, ever since that like, we've kind of sent messages to each other, like when Dave Rowe was going over with me, he told Ian, I said, hi, you know. I got one back, hey, man, yeah, Ian he said to say hello to you, you know.
0: <laughs> and I, I, got, I was lucky enough to spend, you know, like a few weeks. Yeah. You get to know somebody when you're in a van or backstage yeah. every day, a few weeks on tour. And you meet a lot of people on the road who aren't always – the ha- oh, yeah. Happiest yeah. people to be around. And he was the absolute best. Oh yeah. He's he was one of the two guy. best people I've ever met, uh as far as doing opening slots for. He just treated me like a king.
1: Yeah. I mean it's one of the things like I was I was kinda of mortified because I, I mean he's one of my favorites, you know. Um and uh big influence on me, huge influence on me. And uh to have think he was pissed at me, <laughs> you know, it was kind of, <laughs> you know, devastating. But um I think it's all over now and you know <laughs> Well, there was some of that and um one of the first things I wanted to do was to get um you know, I really wanted to get back into my music. I wanted my music back. That was one that was the main thing I lost, you know. And um I really wanted to get, I made the conscious decision, you know something? Like, That's what I want. I don't want this other crap. <laughs> you know. So I hooked up with a couple of guys from my old band, um, over Christmas. And uh, up in Connecticut, I went to my mom's place in Connecticut. And um, Joe, my old bass player, had moved to Nashville. And we were trying to think of a convenient place to, you know, to do it. And he said, well, why don't we come down to Nashville and do it? You know, I got to stay at my place. So we'll record. We got a little studio in the house. So we'll mess around. I said, okay. So we came down to demo some songs. And I just liked the place. I decided to stay a couple extra weeks. And, um, you know, I got a hotel and kind of having a little vacation. I'd never been, you know, I hadn't just vacationed by myself out of New York, any place besides Connecticut, you know. And um, ended up meeting my wife. <laughs> and uh, kind of never went back. I've still got my return ticket. <laughs> How long has that been now? Oh, it's 18 years. <laughs> it's a great town, man. I love it, man. I've never regretted for a second moving here. It's, um, you know... Always has that. everything I could possibly want is here. There's good music. There's good people. And, you know, the thing I like about it is, you know, people respect musicians here. They leave them alone. They don't. Um, they don't diss them. They don't annoy them for autographs and stuff like that. It's, it's cool. Okay. Well, we're sitting in Eddie Arnold's old office, uh, which is. You know, for the most part, as he left it, when he passed away in 2008, um, Plowboy got started because um, Shannon, Eddie's grandson, his daughters and uh, my son go to school together. We met at a birthday party for one of his daughters um, over here at the Maryland Farms YMCA. <laughs> and we um, we hit it off, and uh, we would see each other at different school functions, and then um When I, in 2012, when I did the last Rock from the Tombs uh, tour, it kind of just sunk into me, you know, how how much I was missing my family, you know, how much I was being gone and uh, didn't really want to do it, you know, for, you know, rewards for it wasn't, you know, worth what I was, you know, missing my family. And so I kind of made an announcement to the band, uh, to Rockus, that I was going to be you know, semi-retiring from touring, really cutting back on it. And um, then oh, I put a thing on Facebook about it. Well, a couple of days later, I got an email from Shannon saying, you know, if you're not going to be on the road, uh, I've been thinking of starting a record label, and, you know. You know, I think you might, you know, be a good person to, you know, wonder if you'd be interested We had a meeting, and that's when he told me about the Eddie Arnold uh, tribute project, and um, basically what we wanted to do. And you know, to me, it was really interesting, and it was a challenge, and it was something to do out of you know, you know, still be in music but not be traveling, and I could still play. You know, obviously, I put my you know my own CD out on the label. You know, coming to an hour guy, you can sign yourself if you want. (laughs) (laughs) And oh uh, no i've really loved it i mean it's uh i was a little nervous at first because i wasn't sure i had the experience but then when i got into doing it it was amazing that i actually knew what needed to be done and could you know and it was never you know never been a situation where i wasn't sure what to do I, I, i'm pretty confident about what i've done you know with it
0: and working with some really cool people yeah also.
1: yeah and but... i try to stay out of the music business in nashville for you know 16 years and um, I managed and then this has been I've been up to my neck in it since And but it, I love it it's great well,
0: I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me oh my buddy. pleasure I appreciate you inviting me it's beautiful sitting in Eddie Arnold's old office <laughs> like a time capsule it is I like it here thanks man yeah, thank you I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and I'd like to thank Cheetah for inviting me into Eddie Arnold's old office there in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Cheetah at cheetahchrome.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.